Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. Occasionally, we are joined by guests from around the world, And today is one of those days. Our guest today is on the air with us from Cairo, Egypt. I promised listeners at the very beginning of this show, way back on January 6th of 2021, that we'd cover issues of importance to American national security that likely don't get enough coverage in our press. We have such a show for you today. We're returning to the continent of Africa for our discussion today. And if you hear someone talk about the Nile River, you probably invariably think of Egypt and the fact Egyptian civilization for thousands of years has relied on the Nile River for every aspect of life. But the Nile River is massive, and the Nile River you think about flowing into the Mediterranean is actually the confluence of the Blue Nile and White Nile Rivers, which come together near Khartoum, Sudan. With us to discuss the importance of the Nile River Basin on geopolitical issues in Northeast Africa, it is an expert in African history. Dr. Mark W. Dietz is Assistant Professor of African and World History at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. His research and teaching focus on 19th and 20th century West African history, especially in the Senegambian region. Dietz moved to Cairo in 2017 after obtaining his doctorate in African history at Cornell University. Dr. Dietz embarked on this academic career after retiring from the U.S. Marine Corps in 2010. Uh, During his time in the Marine Corps, Dietz flew helicopters, including Marine One, with the Presidential Helicopter Squadron, serving Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Dietz spent much of his second decade of military service in the diplomatic corps, serving as the Marine and Defense Attaché to West African countries such as Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, and Mauritania. Dr. Mark Dietz, welcome back to National Security This Week. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be with you again. You know, the amazing thing is you're over in Cairo and we're on Zoom. And there is, I mean, it's like you might as well be across for me in in the studio right now today. (laughs) It's just a tremendous what technology gives gives us these days. I hear you. I hear you. It's so cool. It's amazing what we can do these days. What's happening in Cairo? Any big news out of Cairo right now? Well, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, there's some things that have kind of uh, maintained their place in the news lately. Um, I mean, you know, in addition to this uh, topic uh, that we're going to talk about uh, in relation to the the dam in Ethiopia, um, Egypt is going to be hosting the the COP27, uh, which is the climate, the next climate change conference uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh. So there's actually uh, a lot going on right now to um, get ready for that, uh, including here at the American University in Cairo. Uh, we've had calls for proposals and different things like that uh, for people to participate in that, in, in whether it's uh, pedagogy or uh, contributing uh, research uh, to that meeting. Um, the other big news that you know kind of is getting, I think, a lot of people's attention um, is the construction of the new administrative capital uh, 45 kilometers east of Cairo and how that's going to affect life in Cairo. So, you know, the, the, the same thing kind of happened when I was in, uh, in Senegal, they built, uh, uh, kind of a new capital in this area called John uh, east of, uh, Dakar and, and they built a new airport out there that, you know, the idea is that eventually they're going to move the capital. And so they're kind of doing the same thing here um, in Egypt. So you can think of it as kind of similar to moving the capital from what New York city to Washington, DC, the Mm. district of Columbia uh, when that happened. Um, But anyway, uh, 
So there's that. That's That's been in the news quite a bit. And then, of course, like everybody around the world, I think there's been some concern about the effects of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, as as Egypt, you know, which used to be a grain exporter, actually, to the Roman Empire. Uh, Egypt now imports 85 percent of its wheat from UK, Ukraine and Russia. Mm. So I, I so have to imagine. Kinda, yeah, people are like, I don't think it, it's a, I don't think it's a dire situation yet. But um, it's something to pay attention to. And so that, that's been in the news quite a bit uh, as well here. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so, Professor Mark Dietz, uh, you were on the show with us uh, earlier this year talking about uh, West Africa and the, the coups, the coup d'etats that have been happening in West Africa. I've asked you back on the show today to discuss the Nile River Basin. You live and work in Cairo. Uh, let's start our discussion today by talking about the historical importance of the Nile River to literally everyone who lives in Cairo. And I, I actually caught a uh, an article not too long ago, just uh, September 14th, talking about the fact that there was an ancient branch of the Nile River uh, that is gone now, long gone, that actually yeah. assisted the building of the pyramids of Giza. Going 4,500 right. years ago, the Nile River had an right. arm that allowed a lot of those supplies to build the, uh, you know, the pyramids at Giza. Uh, and the, and that that part of the river is gone now. But let's talk about modern day, the importance of the Nile in Cairo itself. Sure. Well, um, you know, it, in Egypt, the Egyptians say that uh, the Nile River is life. Uh, they they basically equate the the Nile River with with life, um, and they they equate it with Egypt. With without the Nile River, there is no Egypt. Mm. Um, so. You know, it's a desert country with a northern coastline on the Mediterranean um, and an eastern coastline on the Red Sea. Um, and so the Nile, again, I mean, the whole country is a desert. The, the Nile is the only freshwater source for a country of over 100 million people. Mm. And uh, about 99% of Egyptians live along the Nile River Valley. So uh, it's, it's pretty hard to overestimate the importance of the, the, the Nile River to e Egypt, to Egyptian life, and to um, the Egyptian nation, you know, the sense of, of national identity that's uh that's here um and i mean you know it's been that way since i, I teach a world history course john I'm, I'm getting ready to to tomorrow to to lecture on uh some of the earliest uh river civilizations in the world um and one of those that we'll be talking about uh is of course here uh, along the nile so it's kind of been that way since it started the agricultural revolution um, and this is one of the great river civilizations of antiquity, along with, you know, like Indian culture on the Indus River and uh, uh, Asian culture, Confucian culture along the, uh, the Yangtze River. Um, this, this is a big one. So and, and by the way, since that time, there has been this sort of uh, intermittent uh, antagonism between Egypt and its upriver neighbors, yep. such as the ancient Sudanese kingdom of Kush um, and, and its descendants. So, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's almost impossible to to overstate the importance of, of the river to to Egypt and to Egyptians. So 99% of the people in uh, in Egypt live along the Nile River. Uh, do they pull water from the river to fertilize uh, crops and whatnot? And then how do they handle yes. Do they pull water directly for drinking water? Do they treat it? What do they do with, uh, uh, you know, sewage from, uh, from 100 million people? Does it go back into the Nile River? Does it get processed first? I mean, how, how do some of those things work? Yeah, the... the um so it is the source for all of those those things that that you just mentioned and uh you know i think one of the things that's frightening uh so many egyptians about the dam that we're going to talk about uh later in the show the dam in ethiopia 
um, is that, uh, you know, there, we have these estimates for, I, I think it's like 1,000 uh, cubic meters of water uh, on a regular basis that um, human beings need to live. Um, and, um, and, and if you uh, look at what the, the effects of, of uh, kind of the, the, the increasing population here in Egypt. So this is also a question of, of uh, population density and the, the, the growing population here in Egypt, which has grown, been growing like gangbusters uh, over, the coast, over the course of the last several decades. Um, you know, the, so the, the amount of water that, that, that's left for each individual is, is shrinking. And again, that's that's part of the concern. And the largest part of that, like you said, John, is actually for agriculture. Okay. Like the the, the, the apportionment to each person. Of course, we all need fresh water to live. Um, yeah. You know, we we all need that to, to to drink and to live. But but the largest portion, the the, the kind of the largest concern is uh, the effect on agriculture, and so the amount of food that's going to be able to be produced. Um, for, for each person. So all of the, the agriculture that's here, and obviously it's not enough since they're importing so much grain from uh, the Ukraine, but the agriculture that's here is all along the river. It's all along the banks of the river or uh, the Delta up there, you know, to the north near Alexandria. And that, that, that's, isn't that a lot where a lot of the Egyptian cotton is grown is up there? And that's a big export product for, for Egypt. Right, right. Yeah, that was uh, a big export product that was uh, really central to uh, early Egyptian development. Um, it, you know, sounds like you know some of your Egyptian history uh, <laughs> under the the guy who was kind of considered the father of modern Egypt, uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, not the not the fighter, not the boxer, not the boxer <laughs> that we all of us Americans think of. Uh, but actually, uh, you know, the, the one of the, the governors, uh, he was a, he was a, an Ottoman governor who uh, became kind of independent in some ways, uh, a certain amount of independence from uh, the Ottoman Empire and uh, really kind of formed this nation uh, into the, the country that it is today. And it did. He did that with uh, a lot of the, the development in cotton. Um and especially after um, the uh, American Civil War, uh, and, and so I, I, what I'm talking about is is the importance of that to international trade because that helps explain why Britain became so interested in colonizing Egypt in the late 1800s. Yeah, and so you're uh, you're a student and teacher of history. How, how big of an impact was uh, has has historically speaking? Uh, was uh, the United Kingdom uh, on the development of uh, the economy in Egypt, even to the modern day? Yeah, well, it's huge. I mean, it, it's very important. I mean, it, it uh, you know, Great Britain is going to use the, the, the cause of abolition of the slave trade um, to help justify its colonial conquest uh, of a number of parts of, of East Africa, but especially in, Af in excuse me, in Egypt. Um, and so they're going to uh, actually bombard uh, the port of Alexandria, you know, this one of the most ancient ports in the world um, here on the, on the southern Mediterranean and uh, and then occupy Egypt in 1882. Um, and so uh, that, you know, that becomes an important uh, part of the logic for uh, British colonialism in this in this part of the world. Um, and then will eventually lead to Egypt becoming um, uh, a colony of Great Britain. But Egyptians are very proud at the same time that that they've never really they, they never adopted English as the official language. Uh, of Egypt. Uh, it's, it's always been Arabic. And um, to some extent, it, Egypt is also different among the, the kind of African, the, you know, colonized African countries. 
um, because it, you know, it, uh, it was, it, it's known as the colonized colonizer mm. because it, you know, it, it had already been colonized by, by the Ottomans. It was part of the Ottoman empire. And then there's this sort of joint Anglo Egyptian condominium that is uh, ruling over Egypt and the Sudan in the 1800s. And the Egyptians are actually the ones who kind of colonized Sudan mm -hmm. uh, originally. Um, before the the British come in and take over in the late uh, 18, 1800s, 1890s. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And again, you know, because you're a student of history, uh, we both of us were history uh, history majors at the at the Naval Academy. So I guess we benefit from from that uh, sharing that uh, similarity. But if you look That's at right. the, the history of uh, of Egypt and the British involvement there, you just mentioned the the efforts on the part of the British to stamp out the slave trade. Uh, and right. up in the Sudanese area of Africa, that, that slave trade was very strong. And so their move yeah. to, to push uh, Egypt and, you know, their partners in Egypt uh, to move up the Nile to combat the slave trade was pretty significant. We have, uh, you know, the the ill-fated expedition on the part of uh, General Gordon. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which didn't right. Turn, didn't turn out too well for him. A typical uh, British uh, military disaster in Khartoum. Uh, but, uh, right. you know, all of those things lead us to start talking about, I guess, uh, we should we should maybe discuss what happens uh, or how big the Nile River really is, give our listeners a, a better sense of uh, the scale of the Nile. Uh, how, can you talk a little bit about kind of where the Nile River begins, the two major branches, perhaps? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so what what we consider the Nile River proper, you're right. I mean, that basically starts in Khartoum, where the, the Blue Nile and the White Nile come together. Um, and we're, we're going to be uh, focusing uh, – mostly today on on the blue nile and talking about these issues with with ethiopia and and we know the the source of the blue nile it's lake tana um in in ethiopia but uh in the case of the white nile we we don't actually know so usually when you read about the source of the the white nile river um you're going to read something that says like central africa or um the the great lakes region mm -hmm. of africa um Older sources uh, would say something like, uh, you know, Lake Victoria. Um, but uh, believe it or not, with all of our modern technology, John, we don't have a specific geographical location that we can identify as the absolute source uh, for the White Nile uh, in, in the Great Lakes region. But um, yeah, the, it's... Uh, by most people is considered the longest river in the world at uh, 4,100 miles long. Um, and so, you know, just to put that in perspective for your listeners, uh, the Mississippi river is 3,902 miles. Uh, so the, the, the Nile river hasn't beat by, uh, you know, 200, uh, about 200 miles here. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also the, in, in between those two, actually, the, the, the Mississippi is the fourth longest uh, river in the world. Uh, in between them are the, the Amazon River uh, and then the Yangtze River. So um, the, the Nile is the longest. Um, and like I said, it originates at the confluence of the Blue Nile and the White Nile um, in Khartoum, which is the capital of Sudan. The country just to the south of Egypt, and uh, but but the Nile River system, you know, with all of its tributaries and everything, runs through ten different African countries hmm. in uh, Northeast Africa and Central Africa, and cooperation between those countries uh, varies uh, widely. Let's say. For our audience, uh, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Dietz, who teaches at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, today, we're discussing the importance of the Nile River Basin in regional affairs in Northeast Africa. Uh, Professor Dietz, let's go, let, you may, we mentioned it. Let's talk about the city of Khartoum. Uh, what role has it played in the geopolitical, geopolitical history of that region in Africa? Well, it's... Uh... 
I mean, as uh, such an important geostrategic location um, at, at the confluence between the White Nile, the Blue Nile, and the White Nile, um, it, you know, it's played a very important role uh, in in the history of uh, of Sudan and, and Egypt to some extent, um, and certainly as the capital of Sudan uh, for quite some time. The city was actually uh, founded. Um, in uh in 1821 and uh this is at the time that uh basically egypt was becoming the the colonizer of uh sudan um and but, but it's also very close to you know you mentioned uh charles gordon that uh, british colonialist who was uh beheaded and you know slaughtered by the forces of of the mahdi who was this Islamic savior who was uh, going to come to save the world. Um, and um, that uh, that took place. Um, and, and then uh, but, but even later then, um, there's uh, going to be the Battle of Omdurman. And mm. the Battle of Omdurman actually is a very lopsided victory for, for British colonial forces um, against the, the forces of the Mahdi. Um, but, uh, that, that, uh, the battle of Omdurman is very close to where, uh, Khartoum is. Um, so, you know, it, it's going to become the capital then of, uh, the, the, the Sudan, uh, administered by this joint Anglo-Egyptian province that was a legacy of imperial compromise, uh, between the Ottomans that, like I said, technically Egypt was still part of the Ottoman empire though with increasing independence from the start of the reign of uh, Muhammad Ali um, and the British. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it becomes the colonial capital and then it remains as the uh, post-colonial capital of Sudan uh, once Sudan gets its independence from uh, British rule in 1956. And, and Khartoum itself today in, in modern day, uh, you know, 2022, how important is it as a uh, kind of a, a regional hub economically for that that portion of Africa? Well, it's it's uh, it's very important um, for uh, you know a, again as as the capital uh, and also as the um, the there. I mean, there's still an incredible amount of uh, traffic going up and down that river, and both of those uh, um, uh, you know at the confluence and then. Both of those branches, the Blue Nile uh, and and the White Nile, and, until you start getting to the the area of the of the rapids, um, which is the the area that uh, often w presented such a challenge to explorers to to get beyond um, those those rapids mm -hmm. to go uh, further up, uh, the, at least up the uh, the White Nile. Um, so it's an important uh, transportation link. Um, and it has been a very important, um, uh, you know, sort of political um, and, and military uh, location for quite some time. There's been a lot of unrest there uh, lately. Um, as you know, if you've, if you've followed the news in the last uh, three or four years, you know, it's, it's, there have been issues and, and the, the long time um, uh, dictator Bashir was uh, finally uh, overthrown. And so, you know, they've, they've, they've had a transitional government for, for quite some time, but um, it's still a country that uh, faces a lot of challenges. As you know, um, South Sudan used to be a part of Sudan. Mm -hmm. uh, South Sudan became independent after a referendum in 2011. Um, and um, and, and so that, so, so, so now Sudan, nor, Northern Sudan, if you will, is, is uh, trying to, get, to find its own way. And yet it, it still faces all of these uh, divisions from uh, ethnic, different uh, ethnic divisions uh, in the country, which have played an important role um, throughout its history, really. 
Let, let's talk about those two branches of the of the Nile River, and maybe we should start with the White Nile. Uh, you mentioned earlier, from a geographic perspective, we're still, even with modern technology, not exactly sure where the start of the White Nile River is. Uh, right. It probably is impacted heavily by uh, when the tropical rains uh, come through every year, and you know <laughs> which basins of water get filled up more than the other, and where they start flowing uh, to the north uh, on, along the White Nile. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the White Nile's geopolitical importance in Central Africa? I mean, it's up in that Great Lakes region. We, it flows north from there, this, the White Nile does. We've, t- we've got the Democratic Republic of Congo. You've got Uganda. You, you mentioned just a minute ago South Sudan. They all figure prominently in the White Nile's meandering path. Uh, even Rwanda, Burundi, and Tanzania are important nations at the headwaters of the White Nile. Uh, what's happening in that region of Africa these days, and what role does the White Nile play in the geopolitics of the Central Lakes region? Maybe the maybe the river itself isn't the important part. It's really the competition for control of other resources that it just happens to be along the White Nile. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's an area of uh, incredibly rich resources uh, to some extent. And um, again, to put on my historian's hat, um, you know, I I teach this world history course going back uh, thousands and thousands of years. And um, we, we've talked about early human development, in the great, great rift valley mm. of Eastern Africa. And, and all of this, I mean, that valley basically starts with the Nile River Valley and it flow, you know, flows south. It goes through all of these, these Great Lakes regions um, down into uh, Southern Africa. And um, it, it's really incredible. And so in many ways, uh, the geopolitics of Northeast Africa and of Eastern Africa start with uh, the Great Rift Valley. Mm. Um, and, and what you see as the, the White Nile um, meanders along to the north is that it's, it's moving from lake to lake to lake. Um, you know, you, you have all of these uh, various lakes. And, of course, Lake Victoria is the largest, but you also uh, have... Um, uh, Lake Albert and and others uh, to the north, and then eventually you get to uh, Lake No in in uh, South Sudan, um, and all of these are linked together um, by the the White Nile. And so, you know, this has been uh, in some ways kind of at the center of human existence uh, for hundreds of thousands of years, and um, it's still uh, an incredibly uh, rich uh area and you know um i mean this isn't exactly tied to uh to the the nile river but um i think one of the most revolutionary things in our lives is the fact that we're all carrying around these uh smartphones in our pockets yep and the fact that you know we were uh, being amazed by uh, the technology that's allowing me to talk to you right now from uh halfway across the world um, through these laptops. And all of these things are powered by these lithium batteries that come from these mines in the Congo mm. uh, with little kids who are risking their lives to go down into these mines um, to um, dig out uh, the, the, the uh, cobalt and things like that that are going to be used to, to form these batteries. So, um, you know, I, that's an important link to, to our lives because we all have these these uh, smartphones uh, in our pockets or in our purses or whatever the case may be. Um, and uh, of course the region has certainly known horrible conflict over the last few decades. Yeah. Uh, we think of the Rwandan genocide um, in 1994. And then um, of course what follows after that with the Congolese uh, civil war that basically runs from 1996 until 2003, um, and uh, five million people dead. Mm. Five million people, John. Oh, I mean, I don't know how many Americans are aware that uh, there was such a such a war uh, in Central Africa. And again, th- this is not tied directly to the geopolitics of the Nile River, but but that's the that's the region uh, that um, this river is coming from. So, like I said earlier, even with uh, all of these great uh, explorers from uh, from the uh, Victorian age uh, in, in the late 19th century, 
um, like uh, Henry Morton Stanley, and Dr. David Livingstone. You, know, you have the famous statement from uh, Livingstone to Stanley, or no, from Stanley to Livingstone when he found it, right? He was looking <laughs> for him. He found him on the, the, the shore of Lake Tanganyika and said, Dr. Livingstone, I presume. But yeah. um, even all of these intrepid explorers could not pin down the exact location of the source, which I think has given it this, eventually this kind of sacred character that uh, we uh, mere mortals uh, were not destined to know, even with all of our advanced satellite technology. You know, the, the closest we can come is somewhere up in the highlands uh, between Rwanda and Burundi. Yeah. Somewhere up there is, is the source of the Nile. Yeah, that area of uh, Central Africa, the, the Central Lakes region, is uh, there's still a lot we don't know about uh, everything that's in there. The the species that live there, we're still, I mean, explorers are still discovering new new species. There's aspects of the rainforests that are in there that uh, might be very valuable from a med- medicinal perspective. Uh, you mentioned uh, the mining that goes on. Not all of it is legal. <laughs> the illegal right. logging that might take place uh, of those forests. Uh, it's just a, I mean, it's a very difficult place to know and understand because it is still so remote uh, from, you know, just from a transportation access uh, perspective, it's hard to get in there. Absolutely. And and it's, it's easier to get in there in general. It, it's been easier to get in there anyway, from East Africa, mm-hmm. from, from kind of the, the, the angle of East Africa and Northeast Africa, just because there was a little more colonial development um, in, in that area. But uh, one of the tragedies of our Cold War support for Mobutu in Congo was that, I mean, he was so corrupt, he took all the U.S. defense assistance and everything that we gave him and, um, you know, did things like buying the, the, the Condor, you know, the, 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 the aircraft buying a new jet and, and buying a chateau in France and all of these kinds of things and uh, really did nothing to build the, the infrastructure, to build roads, to build railroads, to build, um, you know, ri- river transportation ch- uh, technology in the Congo. So they're still dealing, unfortunately, with uh, the, the effects and the legacy, not only of colonialism, uh, but also of some of the, these these ruthless, uh, brutal dictators of the the post-colonial uh, Cold War era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- actions have uh, have consequences and repercussions, right? So it's sort of thir- third and fourth order negative impacts of the things that we're trying to do in the in the near term. Uh, Mark, if we could, That's let's right. uh, you know, let's you know flow north along the White Nile back up to Khartoum. And then take our listeners on a bit of a journey up the Blue Nile River to explore the Ethiopian highlands. Uh, can you tell our listeners about the Blue Nile River? Yeah, sure. So, so like I said, um, it uh, the Blue Nile originates from Lake Tana in Ethiopia, which is kind of in uh, northwest uh, Ethiopia, and it runs for 900 miles. Uh, until it uh, meets up with the White Nile uh, in Khartoum. Um, and so, like I said, though, it's, it's not as long as the White Nile. Uh, the Blue Nile uh, actually provides over 80%. I, I, I believe it's about 85% of the water that uh, moves downstream from Khartoum. Uh, is actually coming from the Blue Nile. And believe it or not, supposedly the, the, the way that these rivers got their names was from the sediment that uh, they carry mm. uh, coming from the Ethiopian highlands, like the like Blue, uh, Blue Nile uh, does um, with some of the rocks and soil and stuff like that. It eventually turned the, the water this, this kind of blue color, um, whereas the the uh, the White Nile uh, has a lot of clay, had a lot of clay coming from the Central Africa area. Mm, And so um, quite often all of that clay content in in the White Nile actually turned the water uh, white. So um, your listeners may have suspected that there were other reasons for uh, (laughs) naming them the Blue Nile, the White Nile, but 
it's actually the, the, the those are the colors that that they are. So anyway, uh, again, eighty uh, over eighty percent of the uh, of the the water that's that's moving downstream from Khartoum, it's coming from the Blue Nile. Obviously, it's it's very important to Ethiopia um, as as a freshwater source there, um, and and also to uh, Sudan, and then of course uh, to Egypt, with you know all of these areas that. Uh, lie downstream from there. So the geostrategic importance of the Blue Nile, re- really, it, it can't be overstated. I mean, it's hugely important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I understand it, uh, up in the Ethiopian highlands every year, the annual uh, you know rainfall that happens up there is pretty significant. And, and during the, the yeah. rainy season, uh, the, pulse, right. the pulse of the river uh, is supported by that rainfall that happens up in the Ethiopian highlands. And there's a tremendous amount of water that comes down from the highlands along the Blue Nile River uh, to make their make its way, you know, those 900 miles to the city of Khartoum in Sudan to marry up with the White Nile. And so Egypt, Cairo, where you sit at the end of the, almost at the end of the Nile River, uh, everything that happens in Egypt, all 100 million people who survive on the water from the Nile River, depend completely on the rainfall that's happening in the Ethiopian highlands uh, a, a few thousand miles away. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I've personally experienced that rainfall. With I, I've been to uh, uh, Ethiopia uh, three times, uh, to Addis Ababa, and a couple times during the rainy season. And, uh, you know, the they don't have four seasons. They have two seasons. It's the rainy season and the dry season. <laughs> and uh, during the rainy season, yeah, it rains cats and dogs, man. It really does. Yeah. Lake Tana fills up, uh, starts overflowing the banks, and you get this uh, tremendous wash down down the Blue Nile River. And, and interestingly yes. enough, Ethiopia, uh, which I'm sure you know, uh, has had a heck of a lot of uh, upheaval. Uh, lots of different yes. wars going on amongst different uh, ethnic groups in the nation of Ethiopia. Uh, I, I know you're more of a, a West African historian, but can you talk a little bit about the strife that's happening in Ethiopia itself? Yeah, no, it's uh, been a huge area of concern, um, partly from a humanitarian standpoint because of this, uh, this conflict uh, in, uh, with the Tigrayan rebels in the, the northern part of the country. Um, I'm, it's, it's wild because uh, for quite some time, there was an alliance between the Tigrayans and uh, the Amharans. Most people in, in uh, Ethiopia speak uh, Amharic. Um, and by the way, the largest Ethiopian community um, outside of, uh, of Ethiopia last I knew was actually in the, Was- the greater Washington, D.C. area. Mm. Um, and, and uh, e- you know, Ethiopia claims to be the birth- birthplace of coffee. So quite often you'll find in any coffee shops in the Washington, D.C. area, you'll probably find some Ethiopians uh, there. <laughs> um, but no, it, what's been going on is really tragic. And, uh, you know, part of it's also sort of ironic because before he started this war, the the prime minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, um, had won the you know the Nobel Peace Prize for finally bringing about peace with Eritrea. Right. It's uh, the the longtime enemy of uh, of Ethiopia. He finally brought about peace with them, and then. Um, Eventually, there's this uprising um, from uh, the Tigrayan region to the north, which is also pretty closely tied with um, Eritrea. But, um, you know, again, ethnicity plays a, a role here because the Tigrayans and, the, and the, basically the northern Ethiopians were in power for quite some time in Addis Ababa. But... Um, uh, Prime Minister uh, Abi uh, uh, is is from the Oromo uh, ethnic group in the uh, southern part of the country, and so you know I, it's hard for people to see the the attacks of the Ethiopian army on these Tigrayans to the north and not see that that in ethnic terms. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it is a, just a flat-out tragedy, everything that's happening in Ethiopia itself. Uh, and, and the country is oh. rich in resources. I mean, water especially, yeah. tremendous resources. Uh, for our audience, uh, this is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Dietz, who teaches at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. And we're discussing the importance of the Nile River Basin in regional affairs in Northeast Africa. Uh, so, Professor Dietz, you've, you've painted a, a really fantastic picture for us of, uh, of both the White and Blue Nile Rivers, which come together in Khartoum to form the, the main Nile River that flows through Cairo, where you, where you live. Uh, the Nile is a massive river, both for its uh, importance as a source of water and, and for life, uh, for the length of its banks, but also for the geopolitical role the river plays in the entire region. So, so I'd like to go back to Ethiopia, and I want to bring up what I think is one of the most uh, controversial things that's happening along the entire uh, Ethi Nile River, uh, and this is specifically the Blue Nile uh, Ethiopia, uh, they, they have been working diligently to create uh, power resources for their nation, uh, and they recently completed the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or the GERD, as it is often referred to. Uh, you live in Cairo and likely listen to Egyptian political leaders and news reports every day. How often does the issue of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam come up in Egyptian politics? And what are the concerns that people have in Sudan about, uh, about the GERD? I, I, I recently saw that the GERD is starting to fill, but it will take years years for that dam to completely fill, uh, and it will provide a tremendous amount of hydroelectric power for Ethiopia and, and the Highlands region as well once it's fully operating. But it's going to impact how much water continues to flow downstream to support life, human beings, and, and everything else, agriculture, you name it, but also the native wildlife in Sudan and in Egypt. Uh, what are you hear, hearing from politicians in, in Egypt these days on this issue? Well, it, you're absolutely right, John, that it's a, it's a huge issue here, and uh, it it comes up uh, quite a bit in the news. And I, in fact, I would say maybe once a month uh, I'm, I'm reading something about it. And, you know, um, I mean, the latest things are about the, the, the continual filling of these reservoirs that uh, that Ethiopia is continuing to do. And uh, although the Egyptians have said a lot of really threatening things about that, at the end of the day, um, there's not a, there's, excuse me, there's not a whole lot they can do mm. um, to stop it. We can talk about that uh, more in a minute, but um, unless they're going to use force, uh, there's not a whole lot they can do about it. And um, Ethiopia to this point, has seemed very intent and very focused on filling it, um, filling it up basically as fast as they want. Um, they have been involved in talks. There have been a number of talks, some of them brokered by the UN, some of them brokered by uh, the US government, by the uh, US administration. Uh, and this, by the way, this continued, this was not a democratic or Republican thing. This actually began with the Trump administration and continued uh, into the Biden administration um, with the U.S. playing, trying to play this kind of uh, mediator role uh, among these three countries. So uh, Egypt, Sudan and uh, Ethiopia. But um, so far, uh, Ethiopia continues to, you know, they finished the completion of the dam. Um, in uh, around 2020 and then uh, began uh, filling it. There's, there's basically two, uh, two separate res reservoirs um, that, that they're filling. And so this has brought a lot of tension to the region. Uh, again, like I said, for Egyptians, the Nile River is life. Mm -hmm. So this is a direct threat to them you know the um uh president uh abdel fatah el-sisi who's the, the president of egypt uh actually said that uh for for egypt this is a matter of life and death i think i i have the exact quote here he said no one can compromise egypt's water 
Mm. It is a matter of life and death. Yeah. Um, so that just gives you a sense of how uh, how seriously they they take this issue uh, in Egypt. Um, and there's also a certain amount of you know uh, kind of a a cynical view of what what has happened here because. The Ethiopians began construction of the dam in 2011. Mm -hmm. Now, what was going on in Egypt in 2011? Right. (laughs) The revolution, right? Yep, yep. So uh, from 2011 to 2013, you've got the Egyptian revolution. And that's that's the point at which uh, the Ethiopians began construction uh, on the dam. And so you can see why Egyptians view this as like a very cynical move while they're distracted um, with, you know, in dealing with their own revolution and dealing with the Arab Spring and all of the fallout from that. Um, Ethiopia started this thing and started construction of this dam. Yeah. And the Ethiopians had been talking about it for years and years um, and you know, before he left power, before he was removed from power in the Egyptian revolution, apparently um, Mubarak had said, uh, over my dead body, yeah. you know, you will not construct a, a dam in Ethiopia. Um, well, uh, so that's one interpretation of history, right? Yeah. That as soon yeah. as they removed him, uh, the the Ethiopians um, began construction. I mean, I think that's a little too cynical in some ways, that, you know, it would take a little more time and a little more planning to get all of the, the construction equipment into place and all of the financing and all of that to, to actually begin at that point. But, you know, it's one of those things in history, like we, we talk about, uh, you remember this, John, you were a history major. We talk about the difference between causation and correlation. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure that we can make an argument for causation here, but there's, certainly uh, a rather disturbing correlation. Um, And that's certainly the way uh, Egyptians view it. So in uh, it was in April of 2011. So that year that Ethiopia made this announcement that they were going to construct this dam. And uh, it's it's costing five billion dollars. Yeah. And who's Uh, covering the cost of that, by the way? (laughs) <laughs> so the vast majority of that is being paid for by the Republic of China. Interesting. To, Very interesting. To the, yes, exactly. To the tune of about $4.2 billion of the five. Um, the rest is being uh, raised through crowdfunding among Ethiopians and among the Ethiopian diaspora. Um, and so... You'll see at uh, rallies and uh, demonstrations in Ethiopia, there are all these T-shirts and all of these banners that say, it's my dam. (laughs) Because the Ethiopians literally have a stake. A lot of them have a personal stake. They've they've actually contributed their money um, for this dam. Now, the majority is coming from, you know, Exim Bank in China. Um, but uh, the the Ethiopians claim that this is their dam because a lot of them have contributed to this. And um, they have a lot of reasons for doing that. It's estimated that 68% of the country in Ethiopia is without electricity. Yeah, that's a huge percentage. This hydroelectric dam in one fell swoop is not only going to solve that and not not only being able to provide electricity for every single ethiopian uh who who wants it or you know who who can afford it um but actually ethiopia is going to be able to export energy uh from this dam so this is the largest infrastructure development uh project on the african continent john um it's huge and uh you can tell that the stakes are also uh, enormous. Yeah. And, and and I will just highlight this. You mentioned a little while ago that you're teaching this course on world history. 
and the development of uh, of major civilizations along some of these you know huge rivers, these really lengthy river right. systems, the importance of these river systems. Uh, let's th- just think through this for a minute. Uh, we're we're creating this massive uh, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It will provide a tremendous amount of power, as, as you just mentioned, electrifying all of e- uh, Ethiopia for the people want it. It's kind of like the American Rural Electrification Project that we did uh, yeah, many many decades person. ago. Yeah. But it it relies completely on hydroelectric, and it relies heavily on a continuous uh, supply of uh, of rains uh, in the Ethiopian highlands. Now we've seen a mega drought hit the Western United States. It's impacting the uh, uh, Colorado River system, which impacts the Hoover Dam. We've seen the same kinds of things hit uh, the Mekong uh, River that flows through Southeast Asia. We actually did a a show on the Mekong River uh, a, a number of months ago. China has been impacted by drought, uh, impacting their river systems. Uh, what what happens <laughs> when people become reliant on hydroelectric power in Ethiopia and the weather patterns change because of climate change and suddenly they don't get these massive rainstorms in the Ethiopian highlands that recharge Lake Tana and flow 80% of the Nile River down the Blue Nile to, to link up with the rest of the Nile? Where does the water come from to, to support 100 million people uh, people in Egypt uh, who rely so heavily on the steady flow of water coming down the Blue Nile. I guess this is where I ask you as a retired officer in the Marine Corps, uh, somebody who studied history as your undergraduate major, earned a doctorate in in history, and you served as a military diplomat in half of your career. What concerns do you have about geopolitical stability along the Nile River Basin in coming years, especially with the potential impacts of climate change? Well, I I have a great deal of concern. Um, I mean, I hope that this is going to be something maybe that they'll talk about, the, the, these various diplomats um, and uh, officials at the, the COP27 summit in, uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh. But, um, yeah, I think this is, this is a huge problem. This, this is the sticking point, John. The, the, um, what, what Egypt would – first of all, most Egyptians don't deny the right – of Ethiopia to develop their country. Okay. Um, and they don't, you know, of course, uh, a very important uh, infrastructure project for Egypt in the 1960s was the construction of the Aswan Dam. Yeah. Uh, un- under uh, Nasser, right? Um, so the most most Egyptians that I've talked to, they they don't have a problem with Ethiopia building the dam in the first place. But what they have a problem with is how quickly they want to fill it up. Yeah. Um, and so really, that has been the crux of, of the argument here. Um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is kind of the like the safety valve, you know, the like the um, the, the complications that could arise from a few years of, of uh, low rainfalls, um, a few, you know, a few years of drought. Uh, what is going to happen then? And. Um, with the effects of climate change, um, nobody knows for sure. Um, we haven't we haven't seen that for sure uh, here. So you know, I was talking about the dwindling uh, availability of water supply per person in Egypt, and I was tying that mostly to population growth, mm-hmm. not necessarily to reduced rainfall. But if we begin to see that, whether it's because of uh, climate change or maybe just a, a bad turn in the weather, um, then I think that's going to be a, a really important um, potential flashpoint or decision point where, um, you know, the, the Egyptian government and the Ethiopian government, the Sudanese government are going to have to um, make a call in how to work this out. And so how much, how much control will Ethiopia give to these other two countries of, of its sovereignty, right? Yeah. Like it's there. So it's, it's going to be Ethiopia's dam. Um, how much control are they going to give to these other countries? And so consequently, we, we haven't seen the, develop of an inter, the development of an international river management uh, you know, regional body like we have with some of the other rivers in uh, the African on the African continent, like the Senegal River in West Africa, 
or the Ovambo River in Southern Africa. Um, and the reason is because Ethiopia doesn't want anybody telling them how to manage this <laughs> dam, uh, how much water they have to release um, or not. And of course, they're trying to reassure the Egyptians and the Sudanese that they're going to be uh, good neighbors and that if there is a drought, of course, they'll, they'll re release more water, um, but there are no guarantees. And so, you know, Egypt has been trying to get some guarantees and uh, they haven't been able to work that out yet. Um, the thing that I think we have going for us, all of us who are, who are living in this region right now, is that I don't think either Egypt or Ethiopia wants a war. Yeah. Uh, they do a lot of saber rattling. That's uh, a part of the diplomacy, you know, to kind of threaten with the stick. Um, but uh, I don't think either side actually wants to do it. And I think there are actually some questions about the capability of the Egyptian Air Force um, to, you know, to carry out the kinds of strikes that would need to be carried out uh, to take out the dam anyway. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's not that it's not just it's not the neighboring country. You know, you got right. Sudan in between. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and like Egypt's closest air base um, would be, you know, there uh, uh, at Aswan. And so it's still like over uh, a, a thousand kilometers, uh, well over a thousand kilometers. So to, to get to, to to that point. So um, there, there, for, for that's one of the things that I think we have going for us in this situation is that I don't think, I don't think anybody wants wants to see a war here, um, and so um, and and for the United States of America, um, it's 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 even a trickier question in some ways because both of these countries are very strong allies yep. of ours. Yep. in the region. Um, Egypt is a very important ally. Um, and, uh, and so is Ethiopia. Ethiopia has been a strong ally, uh, one of the strongest uh, allies of the United States since the, uh, the start of the Cold War. And, uh, you know, we used to have a, an Omega navigation station um, in what's now Eritrea, but then it was a part of Ethiopia. And so we have, and again, we've got this huge uh, diaspora, Ethiopian diaspora in America, and a huge uh, Egyptian diaspora in America too. So uh, again, it's it's not really in anybody's interest to go to war. Um, and so I think we have that going for us. But you know, every once in a while, the, these 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 leaders they have to threaten each other, mm -hmm. and who knows where that could go? Who knows where that could lead? So, so, Dr. Mark, I think Dietz, the situation bears watching. Yeah, you have painted a uh, a great picture for us overall of the entire situation on the Nile River Basin and both the the White Nile and the Blue Nile, and the importance of both those uh, those tributaries into the the main Nile River that flows all the way to Cairo and north into the Mediterranean. Uh, this is why we study international relations, right, Mark, and why we take a look at history and try to figure out why we uh, try to figure out ways to make sure we don't make the mistakes of history as we move forward in international relations. Uh, Dr. Mark Dietz, thank you so much for joining us for the past hour. This has been a great discussion. I really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure to be with you, John. Thanks. And what courses are you teaching this term at, uh, at uh, the American University in Cairo? Yeah, so I've got that world history course. Um, and then I'm also teaching um, an African survey course. It's called Africa to 1830. Um, where we're talking about basically pre-colonial uh, African history. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I'm teaching a new course. This is uh, pretty excited about this one. I'm teaching a course with my colleague from uh, the political science department, Sean Lee. Um, and uh, the course is called, it's an upper level seminar called the, the History and Politics of Civil Wars. Mm. Um, and so uh you know, he looks at as looks at it as a political scientist, and I look at it as a historian, and uh, we try to bring out some of those disciplinary uh, distinctions, and uh, hopefully the students will benefit. So far, it's been a lot of fun. All right, 
Dr. Mark Dietz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. And folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. This is Carlos Correa, shortstop for the Minnesota Twins. If you're looking for your next vehicle, stop 